name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, be with us. Anoint this time together. Work through each of us so that we may learn what you want us to learn, grow in the way you want us to grow. Just be with us and, and fill this time the way you want it to be filled. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So this time I get a big Bible out, which is the combination of the Vulgate and the Dowie Reams, which is a um, close translation of the Vulgate, for Genesis 15.1. Now when these things were done, the word of the Lord came to Abram by a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram. I am thy protector and thy reward exceeding great. I chose that because Marmion uses that last part of that phrase in the Vulgate, Merches tua manya nimis, thy reward exceeding great, to talk about God being our reward. It is a difficult passage to translate, and so not all Bibles have the same type of translation. Uh, some of your English Bibles will break that into two sentences. So you may recall that there's no punctuation back way back then. And this little line is called a nominal sentence or a nominal phrase. There's no verb. Right? So it's very difficult for the translator to know how to translate that. So when he says, I am your shield, essentially it also then, forward, then follows your reward exceedingly great. Well, it's very difficult for the translator to know whether that means I am your shield and your reward will be exceedingly great or I am your shield and I am your reward exceedingly great. Marmion takes the latter interpretation following that of the Vulgate. And this is turning our attention now towards the future, towards the reward we hope to get. So we are on our second to last uh, lesson, and it's like we're at the airport, in the circling in the airport, but not yet landing. Um, so that, uh, that reward is in sight. And today we turn to the nice, com uh, the nice topic of confidence. Now we're on to the humble confidence, we're on to the confidence part. Um, previously we said you always have to keep those two dispositions together. This one now more closely addresses confidence. And then next session we talk about the, re the real reward of it all and union with God and its attributes. Last time we ended at faint-heartedness and, and how people kind of give up their pursuit of God. Uh, they become discouraged, and that's understandable. Uh, and we, we focused a little bit about that, and, and we'll still have more to say uh, as far as advice on how to overcome that in this lesson. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the other difficulty in the spiritual life, uh, which is really another type of lack of trust. So we're going to begin with the mistake and then add the remedy at the end of the lesson, uh, and that's presumption. And we talked about presumption is the mistake that goes to excess. We run ahead of God and stumble and fall. And faint-heartedness is that uh, lack of trust that goes to defect. 
and you just give up. And as we're looking to the future, it's just worth remembering that there are those two paths. There's the path of the great reward. There's the path of union with God that hopefully what the humble confidence leads us to. But just here for a moment, we have to remember that there is that, that other path of, of making mistakes. Generally in life we talk about, but by the grace of God there go I. And so this is Marmion's little reflection on that topic. I'm on page 114. I have received recently a light which seems to me very precious. God is contemplating me at this moment. He sees the depths of my wretchedness. He knows everything, even the contingent future. He knows clearly to what depths I would sink if he withdrew from me his grace. He knows exactly what I am capable of. For my part, I can guess it from the experience of my own past. And indeed, I would fall still lower because the abuse of his grace would in itself be so great that I would be led to commit the greatest crimes. This is strictly true every moment of my life, even when I feel myself on fire with the desire to please God. I am so changeable. This thought humbles me and makes me realize how good God is to sustain me and to understand that I must put all my confidence in the merits of Jesus Christ. Humility, as St. Francis de Sales tells us, is simply the courage to face the full rigor of the truth in regard to oneself with all of its consequences. So, but by the grace of God, there go I. He's not only saved us out of something, but in a sense, he's still preserving us from future falls. And this reminds us of just that aspect of being dependent upon him and, and seeking for that, that grace, that help. But in a general sense, it reminds us that all self-reliance is an act of pride. All self-reliance is, is a more developed act of pride, a more kind of subtle act of pride. And in any sin, really, we say to ourselves, as with Psalm 10, God will never see it. Or we say to ourselves, even worse, saying Psalm 10, there is no God. And is it not to say that to sin is in some way to say that God is nothing? Is to say that, you know, we can do this on our own. And that's the general disposition of presumption. So let's just look at that for one second. And I'm, I'm hearing the extended quote towards the middle of it on 115. The proud man is, more or less unconsciously, putting himself in the place of God. In his thoughts, in his words, in his actions, he is exalting himself, giving primacy of place to his own ego. Gradually, he begins to seek admiration and makes of himself the final end and the center of everything. This reminds us that either we put God at the center of all things or we put something else at the center of all things. And even as we're putting whatever it is at the center of other things, we're also putting ourselves at the center of, other thing, of everything. This is just that general tendency 
that leads towards the presumption. And it's even if we're anxious to please God, we're still, in a sense, trying to anxiously please him the way we want to do so or to have control of the process. Um, and so we have to just be careful of that running before God and his grace. We have to be careful to stay, again, on his path of grace, on his path of blessing, and to allow him to, to lead us on that. And that's hard. That means being vulnerable with God. That means like living in that vulnerability of being dependent on God and, and not just pre-planning it all ourselves. And then, you know, as a little tip, bring that vulnerability to the prayer, right? If you're feeling it, right, that's not a bad thing. And you can make that a very rich prayer. Like being vulnerable with God in prayer is a wonderful thing to do. And so we have that first part of our antidote on the, um, the work of presumption. Now you may think that I'm being a little too severe here, but I'm pulling out uh, another good quote from Grace Burroughs, a mystical writer of the late 20th century, Guidelines for Mystical Prayer. Uh, here is her little comment on the topic. Um, it might seem that we Christians, and she's talking about really developed spiritual Christians in this quote, that we Christians who are striving to live out what we believe, we see our meaning in God, who know in faith the grandeur and security of man in God, can let go this craving for importance. Oh, but we can't. We carry on the pursuit in a far more subtle and dangerous way. We want spiritual importance. We want our interior life, our way to God, to have elements which make us feel important. We want to rise above the mediocrity of the common lot. This might seem justifiable, but in reality it could mean nothing but a desire for a more interesting form of spiritual life a desire to escape from the sheer drabness of the ordinary, seeking a shortcut from the drudgery. Back again to the secret coveting of spiritual riches, beauty, glory, achievement. Ruth Burroughs is especially good at noting that importance is really that that great pearl or whatever that we're seeking instead of the, the pearl of great price, which is Christ. We each define it differently, right? Uh, and we change our definition of it through life. But that is that thing, however we perceive it, uh, that is constantly that risk of drawing us into presumption. Uh, and so it's just, it's just worth recognizing that and all the full difficulty of that so as to at least recognize the traps that are associated with it. Um, if we recognize that aspect of ourselves, we'll become better at avoiding that trap and diverting into it. And then Marmion, in a similar way, says, those not seeking God in all things are either attached to created things or seek themselves by egoism, self-love, levity, and is themselves too that they find themselves, that is to say, nothingness. And I add here that Marmion's kind of being a, a new koalith, um, 
like the book of Ecclesiasticus. Um, and it's true that if we're constantly falling into presumption, even out of anxiety to serve God, we keep getting off the path of blessing. And, and we don't find that blessing there. And there is a certain vanity to all of that. So um, that's one path forward in the future, the one that we hope to avoid. I now, however, want to turn us to the question of confidence and a humble confidence and how to build that confidence. So, and this will lead us towards that path of reward that we began on at the start. So thinking of confidence, uh, and especially we're talking here, the confidence of asking God to really do great things in our lives. You know, to really make us flourish to the ex fullest extent we can. Uh, all those gifts of the Holy Spirit that we want. Um, that rich union with him that we want. We're really asking him for the best that he can offer in all of this. And so how do we consider confidence in that type of prayer? Well, St. Benedict says if you're going to ask a, an important person for uh, something very important, you do so very respectfully. And you think very carefully about how to approach the person. Um, as Catholics, obviously, we would say maybe you take a friend along with you that's, that's a helper in all this. And of course, there's that Marian spirituality and the spirituality of the saints along with that. But it's, it's this question of how do we proceed to ask for this amazing gift and open ourselves to it. And there are kind of two, two sides to this. One, placing our confidence in God to that full extent that that can happen. And the other side, maintaining that confidence over time. Uh, and I'm going to talk about two attributes in each. And the first is um, the form, just kind of generally in, a, in an abstract, what are the forms of each. And then a little bit about the material in the actual particulars of Marmion's life. So in putting our trust in God, there seems to be a committed confidence and a pure confidence. Um, so a committed confidence. This one is actually rather difficult to hunt down, but it's still worth thinking through, even if it's hard to pinpoint. Presumably, if we're going to seek union with God, or God's greatest gifts, we're going to place a, a more committed confidence in him than that just kind of standard baptismal confidence. Though it's really hard to say, like I cannot pinpoint whether that baptismal confidence is itself all that is necessary. But based on the fact that maybe we didn't wake up saints today, we could think about whether a little commitment is necessary on, on all of this. Um, and St. Thomas uh, Aquinas is um, very good about this. And let's see. Um, here is what he wrote. When we genuflect, we signify our weakness in comparison with God. That's part of our dependence. And when we prostrate ourselves, we profess that we are nothing of ourselves. And then in a different phrase, he, he perhaps gives us some specificity on that. Although I am nothing of myself, no, nevertheless, all that I hope to be 
and all that I am is in you, my God. This notion of a prostration being perhaps a little bit more deeper confidence calls to mind different, different types of, of kind of commitment in life. Uh, in Marmion's life, there was that profession to God of, of, of giving his life away as a monk. There was that prostration during his ordination to the diaconate and to the priesthood. Um, but I don't think it has to be limited to that. I think marriage vows are a significant commitment that could probably be seen as the same thing. And um, he also, if we just want to broaden our view a little bit more, he consecrated, like he, he did a little consecration of himself to the Holy Trinity. He wrote a little prayer of saying, I want to consecrate my life to you and put some particulars to it. And a lot of people do these types of little consecrations, uh, and there are myriad different forms of them uh, that they take, but it's a way that people, you know, a few decades into the journey, say, I want to recommit, and, and this is a more specific way I want to recommit, or commit at a, different, a deeper level. Those are just some ideas. I mean, again, it's hard to pinpoint, but it seems as if you don't just say, okay, I read this page, check the box, right? I'm committed to God at a deeper level. It seems like there is some sense that you want to concretize it in some way, like take a little pilgrimage at least down to the cathedral or something. Like just do something that says, you know, I'm going to do nine days of prayer, a novena. I'm going to like really make this something that I, I'm going to, you know, focus on. Again, it's impossible to really pinpoint but there seems to be a level of commitment that's necessary. And with each of these, we're deepening both in confidence and in humility as we go. Like this is, I know this is a variation on the theme, but it's a variation on the theme that continues further into a, a, a virtuous cycle. Um, and, and so it's this notion of with that extra step, you are placing your confidence in, in, in him and your dependence upon him at the same time. Second attribute, a pure confidence. This one's really hard. Okay, we know that, that God rewards those who are pure of heart. They shall see God, right? So we know that purity has some real important aspect in this whole thing. We want that beatitude of purity of heart. And a lot of great speakers in the spiritual life speak about purity of heart, especially if you've ever read the ancient desert fathers and mothers. They talk a lot about purity of heart and how to, to, to get it. And there's a lot of ascetical practice around developing that purity of heart. And, and those are all valid ideas worthy of application at different points in time. Um, but there seems to be a tragic mistake if we believe that we, we will become pure enough <laughs> to see God. There seems to be a tragic mistake that if we believe our asceticism will render us pure enough to see God. It may purify us of all those obsessive attachments that are taking our energy, distracting our attention, and everything else. Um, and that's important. But fundamentally, we have to allow Christ's purity to supply for us. And, and all these things... We need to allow him to supply for us. I think I've said it already, but I'll say it again because it bears uh, repeating. 
I really believe a lot of people have this fear of coming incomplete before God, right? Um, and out of that fear of that judgment, that particular judgment or whatever, being incomplete on that day, we do so many things that, that make us anxious about the pace and progress of our spiritual lives or uh, of whatever our, our achievements are, etc. And um, again, it's in letting God supply for our incompleteness. It's in that that we find the true completeness and confidence in God. It's in that that we find our true purity as well. Here is Marmion on the topic. I very much wish that you could acquire calm and peace. And it is certainly an inspiration of the Holy Spirit that is urging you in this direction. Only do it very gently and quietly. And don't be too much distressed if you don't succeed straight away. The best means of acquiring this calm is an absolute resignation to God's holy will. There you will find the region of peace. And try to wish for nothing, to attach your heart to nothing, without having first presented it to God and placed it in the sacred heart in order to wish it in him and with him. One of the chief reasons why we lose peace of soul is that we desire something. Our hearts cling to some object without knowing if God wills it or not. And then when an obstacle is opposed to our desires, we are troubled. We are no longer in conformity with his holy will and we lose peace. It is so easy for us, again, to lose that step of discernment and just go after something, even something we think is good for God, rather than just take that moment to pray, well, is this what you want me to do this Saturday or whatever? Um, is this what you, you want? Is this their path of blessing for this coming weekend, etc.? You know, even in little things. Um, not Again, not anxiously, the way we talked about last time, but um, we lose our peace uh, every time we let something else in the way. And it's true also in the spiritual life that as we grow in it, we learn more and more of our own humanity. We learn more and more of our own weakness and foibles and tendencies we get a better sense of that besetting sin. We, be, we get a better sense of where it is that we could fall to presumption. And, and we, that's that very point, that deepening self-knowledge, where you can have that deeper confidence in God completing the whole process. That's that very point we're talking about. When you kind of really get to know that, that like, ah, oh, there's some muck in my life. And I feel incomplete before God. It's, but, okay, well, with God's help, we're going to just, you know, follow that plan forward for whatever is left in this life and hope in him completing it when I come before the Father. I don't have to come perfect or complete. Thinking again of God being our great reward for a second, we have this wonderful phrase in Matthew 19, 29, where he says, um, 
if I remember it properly, I think it's Peter, who said, we've given up father and mother and, uh, and friends for you. What will we get? And he says, um, you will get heaven and a hundredfold in this life. And, and he's very clear. There's a lot of blessings to be had in this life. There are a lot of blessings that he wants to give to us in this life. And then he really, as a, this compassionate father, is only trying to help us to thrive in those blessings. It's just we have to learn how to have that humble confidence to stay with his, his path. Now, it is impossible for God to supply a hundredfold of greatness for every single person in this world in this life. So that doesn't seem to be the way that it's necessarily going to play out. Or a hundredfold of comfort in this life. Um, but what he can do is show himself to you. What he can do is, is show you that the kingdom of God is within. What he can do is show each person that your great reward is in your friendship with God. And that there could be great peace there, interior freedom there. There could be the chance to um, be at peace with others and, and just be who one's meant to be. Again, not with all that anxious striving, but just be the one's gift to each other and to other people. And just let God be that gift through us to other people. And so it's all, to be on the lookout for that hundredfold. Yes, in the, the, the wonderful things of this life, friendship, the true goods of this life as well, uh, those are all great. They, they're goods to be enjoyed, and they show us of God as well. Um, but, but also for those of prayer and those of relationship with God. So, so far as we're putting our confidence in God's reward and God's ways, we're starting with committing a little bit more deeply to his ways. And that means, you know, kind of getting anything of a false purpose or a false end out of our lives. That whole notion of, you know, okay, God, I'll serve you if you do this for me. And start to be more like, okay, I'll, I'll serve you. <laughs> and I'll trust you uh, to do great things in my life and for me and, and in me. Uh, and with our relationship. So getting anything that's, that's distracting us from that true purpose out of the way, uh, committing a little bit more deeply to the fact that that reward is possible and that he'll get us there and, and make us the most amazing versions of ourselves. And then realizing that we're on a journey towards that and our humanity is what it is. And we don't have to allow ourselves to be overly burdened by that very fact right now. We can vulnerably commit that humanity to God in prayer and ask him to help complete us along the way. This isn't the end. We still have one more time to talk about the, uh, the maintaining confidence in God over life and then really the attributes, the true attributes of union with God, also looking at some of the false uh, mistakes about union with God. So that we have a real much more, by the end of the next lesson, clearer understanding of what that real reward is, what that hundredfold can be, so that we can more peacefully search for that and allow God to bless us in that way. So,
that's the set piece for tonight. And uh, I'll try to answer any questions you may have. So the grace of the moment, um, do I mean every moment? <laughs> yeah, I suppose I do. I mean, I, I think the traditional, the traditional thing is that if you're too worried about the future, I mean, there's, there's worthy thoughts of the future and how to prepare for the future, right? But if you're too concerned with what will be, you're kind of getting off the path of grace just by that. Or if you're too stuck in the past, you're also kind of stuck in the past. You're, you're, you're off your path of grace in that sense, too. That doesn't mean that any thought of the past is getting you off of grace, right? But if you're stuck in the past. Um, and so there is this just general notion of it's, it's only right here and now where the grace is for right this moment. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you. And, and that also speaks to that vulnerability of this moment, right? Mm -hmm. This moment has its awkwardness, right? This moment has its vulnerability. And you've got to be like, okay, God, like, I, what do you want to do right now? Right? And, and what do you want me to be right now? Um, and sometimes, you know, there are, there are things to bring to God about that moment as well. Okay, so on, on page 116, yeah. um, in other words, in remembering our weakness and dependence um, and staying present to the moment, we allow God to increase our work or asceticism or prayer life as he, does, as he deems fit. Um, and it doesn't work to push ourselves beyond our own state by our own powers. You know, I, I think that's, it's okay to be you right now, right? God is like personally fascinated with each of us as we are right here, right now. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about this next week, that in the spiritual life, there's that great, th for some people in their spiritual lives, a little bit of what Burroughs was talking about, um, the excess in the spiritual life is like, I want to know where I am on the path. I want to know how I get to Mansion 7 of Teresa of Avila by tomorrow. And, and you, know, you know, that's, and then they get very anxious about that part of their spiritual life, right? They start to judge themselves about that. And I think that's true of anything. So, uh, generally speaking, whatever our, our real purpose is, whatever we're assigning as the purposes of our life or of our you know, s um, goal for right now, is also the measure we're using against ourselves. Yeah, so the, what you just said, that God is happy with me as I am right now. Well, there are times when I'm not happy with myself as I am. How can God be happy with me? Yeah, what a, what a, what a beautiful statement of vulnerability, right? Because sometimes God's, ha uh, maybe always, God is more happy with us than we are with ourselves. Yes, I, I mean, I think it almost would say, like across the board, that God's always happier with us than we are of ourselves. But sometimes we feel even more intensely unhappy with ourselves than at other moments, right? right. 
Um, you know, coming at that from a spiritual point of view, you're never closer again at saying, okay, I, I surrender to you. I just hope for your mercy than when you kind of feel that way, you know. Uh, again, I don't want to get into a question of how to, to kind of look at that from other points of view, but I, there is that real sense that you've got an opportunity at whatever the rock bottom is of, of any moment of saying, okay, well, what are we going to do together? What are you going to do this time in my life? Like, okay, we saw where I go, right? <laughs> you know, now let's try it your way or let's see what you want to do with this life. Um, that's very St. Theresean. She's like, hey, look, you found out, we found out again what I do by, by my own efforts, right? working on a certain area and you become more content and you move on to another area and you're working hard on this area and the first area pops up again and <laughs> do you ever reach a point in your life when you feel other than the aesthetic the aesthetic people that are risen above us in spirituality ever get to a point where they say okay So the, the question is, you know, we seem to kind of constantly cycle through these different difficulties, right? When we get one thing under control, it seems like something else pops up. And we get that under control, the other thing pops back up. And it, it just, it's like spiritual whack-a-mole, right? Like, um, you know, I, I think, I think, and do we ever get past that? That is the, that was the ultimate question. Um, I, th I think what I, I would say from Marmion's point of view, you will have different spiritual th uh, thinkers who will have different points of view on that. Um, maybe I'll first start with some other ones. The old, especially desert monasticism, had this point of view of like, yes, you will first conquer you know, gluttony, and then you will conquer lust, and then you will conquer whatever. You go all the way up until you get to pride and, you know, you knock that one off too and you live in bliss. Um, I think Marmion, <laughs> and especially after St. Therese, is, is, is making a turn of there's really a necessary work to root out of the soul anything that is really pernicious. Um, but the major turn is I'm going to be a monument of God's mercy not of God's perfection, right? And there's that turn that I think I'm trying to get across to people, like maybe we are going to come in complete before God. Maybe we will have a spiritual whack-a-mole for quite a long time. But maybe we'll become greater signs of, okay, he's merciful to me, and I'm going to spread that mercy to other people, rather than show off a perfect monument of, you know, sanctity to other people. And that, that is kind of what this is, this is kind of getting at at one level. It doesn't, it doesn't say that you don't do that other work. It's maybe you go back to the other work more peacefully. 
right? So in the sense of, okay, so where do you want to be merciful to me now? Like, which one are we going to work on, right? Which one are we going to hopefully eradicate, too? You see, it doesn't necessarily have to negate anything of the other one. It just brings, I think, a more peaceful approach to the whole thing. Terry. Oh, okay. I, I like that idea. So the question is, um, turning back to Marmion's consecrations, or just the idea of consecrations in general as a way of commitment, how is that linked to the sacramental life, right? Um, I mean, first, I mean, I did mention ordination, which I think is a clear-cut sacramental consecration, right? So, but, but that's, and I think also marriage is that clear-cut sacramental consecration as well. Uh, of commitment, um, but I think when I, and, and I, like I said, I can't pinpoint where that commitment starts. Those are two really good spots, but that doesn't mean that people that don't get married or don't become ordained can't be fully committed either, right? So I think pinpointing this exactly is very difficult. Um, some people make what are called, the, uh, and then sorry, before I jump forward, your other question was, is going to say Sunday church part of that consecration. And I, I think that's a great idea, right? I think you're, you're making that Sunday commitment to be there, right? And you're consecrating life by being there Sunday after Sunday. You, you really are turning a life over to God in that way. I think that's, that's a wonderful insight. Um, more specifically, these consecrations that people are talking about... Um, they're so varied. Like, I mean, there are so many different formulas of the way that people, but people will spend a period of time praying about it, let's say 30 days, or maybe you do like an Ignatian retreat uh, or some modified Ignatian retreat, and you say, okay, I'm, I'm restarting my walk with God at a deeper level here at the end of this retreat. Um, and sometimes they just write it out. Sometimes people at a more deeper path, they say, um, okay, I really want my life to be given to this aspect of Jesus, right? So you've got Franciscans or the missionaries of charity or people who are third orders with them, people who are associated with them, saying like, okay, I'm going to really commit to serving Christ and the poor. And that's really going to be a mission of mine in life, right? That's a deeper focus of sorts that almost anyone can kind of make. Those are the types of these consecrations that people type start to make. It, it, it just gives a focus to their life, um, but also gives a deeper purpose to the, to the walking with Christ in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is on page 119, where you talk about, in, in wanting merely to return the love already received, you then measure your life by the love you give. Your life then becomes about receiving the graces that increase the love received and given. And I, where my mind gets tripped up is the second sentence or the second part of the sentence. 
and wanting merely to return the love already received, you then measure your life by the love you give. I'm not, I don't know, my mind, I'm not sure what that No, means. it's great. In fact, I meant to, to touch upon that paragraph, so this is wonderful. Um, page 119. Uh, I'm going to begin a little bit earlier. The path of spiritual childhood, that is ex of accepting your nothingness, reverses the fundamental arc of spiritual presumption, which then crashes into spiritual cowardice and decline, um, by humbly and confidently accepting yourself as already being loved by a God who wants to transform you. And merely wanting to return the love already received, that is Christ's love, you then measure your life by the love you give. Um, just stopping there for one second, you know, that purpose we choose in life, we get a choice on that. And choosing to, choosing to make love okay. of God and neighbor the real focus of our life. Um, it's interesting, like, I will ask a group of 17-year-old boys, what's your purpose for life? We will talk for 45 minutes about everything under the sun before, and, and, and almost never do they actually end up saying to love God and neighbor, right? And it's, it, they've all learned it, again, from when they were this, this big, right? And, and they learned, like, God, you bring an eighth grader in, you say, what's the purpose of your life? The eighth grader's more or less going to say to love God and neighbor, you know? Um, we forget it along the way. And even in saying it, we make practical other deeper commitments to other things sometimes, or at least within that sphere, we find other ways of kind of, you know, some of the, what I was talking about at the start is that even in that purpose, you can get lost of, and that's going to be the seventh mansion of, of St. Teresa this month, right, or whatever it is, or it's going to be being a perfect person for God this month, or, you know, um, whatever it is. So, but I think the great purpose, I mean, to be very explicit about it, is to love God and neighbor. I think we were made, made, that we don't just choose this because it's revelation. I think we were made to be a gift of self. The God who is a communion of self and a gift of self made us in his image to be a gift of self to other people. We are written in our natures. Uh, the theology of the body is so good about that. We're written in our natures to love and that our real, our real purpose, no matter what, is to love God and neighbor. And we are fulfilled, and we find our blessing when we're on that. And, again, your purpose is your measure, right? So we can measure ourselves by that. And even when you're feeling low, and you're just receiving mercy and giving mercy, you could be doing really well at loving God and neighbor. You may not be complete or perfect, but you may actually be loving yourself, God, and other people at a much deeper level. There's a real chance of achievement at love, even in difficult circumstances. Gene. How do we, uh, what is a good way to... Okay, how to use these principles to make 
the mass and more uh, deep encounter with God and less routine. Um, Marmion's really good on a lot of that. I didn't include a lot of it in the book because, like I said, I was focusing on private prayer and, and our interior life a little bit more. Um, but he says that all of this, in his mind, is his preparation for the next encounter with God at Mass. So he says his deeper surrender through the day, his deeper charity through the day, is just his preparation for the next time that he encounters him. Uh, and then, you know, we see the Mass as the source and summit of the Christian life. So the source being it's giving you all that grace to go out and be Christ, let him relive his life in you for the rest of the day or week, um, and summit in the sense that that's where we meet him again. Um, and I, that's a start of giving some, you know, um, idea of how to come at it. Um, as for the particular liturgies, um, using some of the principles we've learned here, you know, applying some of those principles of Lexio Divina to the, to the readings, for the Sunday literature, um, seeing those Old Testaments are almost always chosen for their typology for the Gospel or the, or the second reading. Like there's intentionally a play on the readings there that you can play on if, if you, if you want to look into it. Uh, a lot of people like to do their Lexio Divina on the upcoming Sunday readings so that they're prepared to get that richness a little bit more uh, when it comes. Um, it's easiest, I think, to practice on the presence of God when you're in church, although some people just have that favorite spot elsewhere that really works well for them. Um, uh, we talked about acts, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, supplication. I think, uh, again, seeing that God made the Mass as His revealed ways of praising the Father in the fullest. We cannot invent ways to praise God like that. Does that make sense? Like, and even that deep friendship in our private prayer can't reach what it is, that sacrifice that Christ did on our behalf. So again, when we're saying, let him supply, you see that again, his blood poured over you. You receive that, you know, in communion. You're letting him complete you. Let him supply for your deficiencies. Let him bring the mercy. Um, I think if you played with a lot of these concepts, you'd be able to find different ways to apply them. Um, in particular, in Marmion, his book called Christ in His Mysteries, which I touched upon during the Practice of the Presence of God section, um, that entire book is almost a liturgical reflection. Um, and he goes just, you know, major feast by major feast, or, or major cycle, uh, a season by season. And, and, and gives you really deep, rich liturgical reflections on each of those. And he's good about, as a very Benedictine approach to this, he doesn't just do the readings, he does the prayers as well. A lot of people don't preach on the prayers, but there's a lot of rich prayers there. And like 90% of the time that the word grace is used in church is actually in the prayers. Um, so there's a lot, like today's prayer is especially beautiful, um, the, the collect of today. Uh, the final prayer, or the opening prayer. Some of your comments led me uh, to uh, wonder why the church doesn't have more um, renewal of vows, whether it's marriage, baptism, 
baptism and those kinds of things as a way of, of you know, as more of a formal way within the church to, to say, look, this is what baptism is all about. So renewing your marriage vow at least one yeah. Uh, yeah, um, so it's surprising that Gene says that people, more people don't renew their vows, right? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a wonderful way to recommit. Um, you, you re renew your marriage vows is what you're talking about. And we renew our monastic vows once a year. Um, so, um, and bringing the two together, I was at Gene's renewal of vows when his grandson, at the end of the second sermon, really, at the end of Mass, said, amen, amen, let's go, let's go. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It wasn't to me. It wasn't directed to me, so that was great. <laughs> yep, Paul. Father, as a retired mechanic, I, I and my cohorts had to rely on humble self-confidence constantly rebuilding equipment. And when I look at war machines, the tanks, the bombs, the aircraft, the machine guns, it's this precision, um, self-confidence. How do you reconcile humble self-confidence with structured self-confidence? Okay. How does God justify his people using their intellect mm -hmm. and their will Okay, how do I reconcile humble self-confidence with destructive self-confidence? And I think in particular that man in his competence, uh, and as you put, kind of self-reliance, can create kind of horrible just machines of destruction as well, right? Uh, it's, not that, it's not that you only use your competence when you're in this line of grace, right? We have a lot of natural gifts. We can figure out a lot of natural gifts of, of how to put them to use in this life. There are very talented people in this life who maybe have very little grace but achieve a great bit. Maybe not so peacefully. I mean, the hope of our course is to how to try to find that interior freedom. Uh, and, um, and I think maybe along the lines of your thinking is that the less interior freedom we have, the less of that real grace we have, perhaps the more we go to, ex some of us, go to excess, right? That basic human push either to go to excess or to defect. And people become more aggressive, you know? Very talented people who don't have the inner peace can, and who are on the side of aggression can become very aggressive. Or very subtly aggressive, right? That like enlightened selfishness that, that's really, really good at hiding it but very manipulative. Uh, people know how to, we know a lot about that in our world, right? Uh, you know, the other side is generally people, other people go to defect and they, um, they become too passive uh, or avoidant or whatever. Um, so I think the interior peace, the grace, is very important for us all, right? That's what helps us to stay in the center and hopefully focus on using all of our talents, ennobled by grace and the gifts of the Spirit, for the building up of a culture of mercy and love. Um, now, I think also, and maybe I haven't yet made it explicit, that 
the better we are in confidence in God and his mercy on us and his love on us and his, his gifts of blessing for us, the more confidence we should start to find in ourselves. Like, okay, like God's on my side. Like, I'm a beloved son of God. Like, this may feel very vulnerable, but I'll still be loved on the other side of whatever this is. Or if I've only got a moment to fix this thing, like, come Holy Spirit, help me put this thing together because we've got to get this working, right? But you should find that confidence of, I'll find that peace. Like you were talking about as a mechanic, right? I'll find that peace of like, I don't know, I've got a limited amount of time to make this complex thing work. Give me the poise and let me use my talents to focus on what I need to do. I think it's finding that poise in God helps us to find it more deeply in ourselves as well. And that helps with all of our practice and, and works that we have to do. So if the Mass is the source and the sum of the Christian life, uh, and uh, is God's revealed ways of praising him, why do so many people not get as much out of it? Uh, and what do we need to do as far as whatever obstacle is there? Um, well, I think a lot of this is um, that grace is sometimes hard to detect. It takes a little subtle training in grace to start to realize God. The whole practice of the presence of God is a subtle training as well. Um, and we grow in that. And um, the, the Mass, it has a certain noble simplicity to it. It has a certain rigor to it that some people find very out of touch with their contemporary lives. Like, if you are 13 and your games last on, on average two and a half minutes before you hit replay and know what the, whether you won or lost, 45 minutes at Mass is going to seem a lot longer to you, right? Um, but on the, on the side, I mean, on the deeper side, if we're going like, to talk about older people for a second, um, you don't want it so... You don't want it so um, loud or distracting that you can't enter into the deeper contemplative aspects of Mass. So we have to strike a balance there when you have a whole community together. Some people really want to deeply encounter God in a contemplative way in that Mass and deeply receive and think about it. You talked about an obstacle. I mean, this is my own little opinion. It's one held by a certain group in the church. Um, I think a lot of us for a long time have associated mass or our feelings with mass about the music. You know, like when we play more emotional music, like I'm a Benedictine, I like chant. I like, it's very, it's, it's, it's not as emotional, right? It's more contemplative. Um, but I think on the other end of the spectrum, the more emotional your music is, and it's supposed to produce a specific emotion in you, if you're not matching that emotion at that moment, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not getting anything out of this. Right? And it starts to have this notion that your emotions are the measure of that, of your experience of that mass. Uh, and I don't think that's, that's fair to the whole way God set this up. I don't think emotions are the measure of the spiritual life or of the Mass. Um, 
So it's maybe a little bit more austere than people want at this point in time when they're hyper um, exposed to, say, screens and constant feedback. Um, but I think we have to push through to try to find God there. And we're only going to find him in the still small voice, right? Not in a giant miracle or constant emotional feedback. We're going to find them in peace. I don't think the two-minute, two-and-a-half-minute games ad infinitum brings peace either, right? You know, it's, there's a moment for a, a boy, say, to play those games, but that doesn't ultimately bring you the peace either. So I, I, my kind of little critique is we made Mass a little bit, after the Vatican Council, made the Mass a little bit too much about the people and about the music of their emotions, and not so much about God, the vertical aspect of it. And I think you'll find a lot of the younger clergy, well, I mean, that's a broad stroke, but uh, you will find younger clergy who want, again, focus more on Mass being a more vertical offering to God. And, that, that, and, and yes, there's a community there and a horizontal aspect of it all, too, um, but perhaps with a little bit more emphasis in the one direction than the other. I mean, what people don't realize is just how intensely scriptural the, 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 even the prayers of the Mass are, right? Like we have so many scriptural allusions <laughs> built into the regular, regular prayers, the ordinary prayers of the Mass, as well as the, the propers that rotate. Um, there's a lot of richness there, right? I think just immediately of the um, Holy, 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 that just that song right there. There's a lot of beautiful aspects with that song. That, you, that I personally, that's a rich moment when I can, if I'm very distracted at Mass and I've just come like two minutes before Mass from something else and it's taken me a while to get kind of situated in the Mass, that Holy, Holy, Holy is kind of that one moment where I can focus in with the angels and be like, okay, no, we're here for something very special. And maybe I'll get, you know, focused for that ten minutes, um, which is the key ten minutes. So. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Uh, come, Holy Spirit, help us to accept your mercy and to spread it, to be monuments of your mercy, to place our confidence in your grace, in your path of blessing for us, to commit to that, to realize that you are our purity and you will complete us, and that we just want to walk with you and lead us wherever you want us to go. Help us on our next steps. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.